Let us now read what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 17. There we find God's Word summarized as follows. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn 28, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, recently a story was in the news suggesting that a 2,000-year-old Jerusalem tomb could contain the remains of Jesus of Nazareth and his family. No doubt some of you will have read that account or heard about it on TV. And the story also states that there is evidence that Jesus and Mary Magdalene might have produced a son named Judah. I won't bore you with the details of that ridiculous story, But it does show that many people are inclined to believe it, else they would not publish and make a documentary about it. The vast majority of the people in the world believe that Jesus was an ordinary man in every respect. He lived on earth, but he also died, just like everybody else. He was also put into a grave, and that is where he turned to dust. The biblical account about the resurrection is just a story made up by some followers of Jesus after his death. Many modern theologians also believe that. One such theologian stated that death is part of the cycle of life. Life cannot exist without death. Look around you in nature That theologian says the death of the trees in the forest is fertilizer for a new forest. Nothing comes to life without death. And that's also the way it is, he says, with the human race. The death of one person makes room for the life of another. And so we all have to die. Nothing can change that. There is no such thing as eternal life. There is no such thing as the resurrection. And therefore, make good use of the time you've got. Make your mark. There are also those who deny the resurrection in different ways. They say, Jesus did not rise from the dead, but he is alive. He is alive in the hearts and minds of men that Jesus of Nazareth was a very good man with many high ideals and wonderful qualities. 
He died for those ideals, and therefore we should use him as a good example. Brothers and sisters, to believe in the resurrection is not a natural thing for mankind to do. It is hard. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 and following. He writes, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been praised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And he says further in verse 19 and 20, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It is only because of the resurrection that we have hope in this life. And that is what I will preach to you about this afternoon. I will preach to you about the wonderful benefits of the resurrection. That is the theme of this afternoon's service. And the benefits are shown in Christ's, first of all, triumph over death. Secondly, his triumph over sin. Thirdly, his triumph over Satan. And once again, his triumph over death. I will say that once again, the theme is the wonderful benefits of the resurrection. And these benefits are shown in Christ's triumph over death in the first place. Secondly, his triumph over sin. Thirdly, his triumph over Satan. And then once again, his triumph over death. As I said, it is hard for us to believe in the resurrection. Even the disciples of the Lord Jesus themselves did not believe it at first. The Lord Jesus had told them in clear language on several occasions that he was going to be triumphant over death. He first said it in symbolic language, speaking about his body as a temple, and that that temple will be destroyed, but that in three days he will raise it up again. And later he gave that same message in plain language. But it did not register with his disciples. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, they thought that that was the end. That is why they did not even deem it worthwhile to visit his grave. On that first Easter morning, they stayed in bed. Not one of them thought that the Lord Jesus might have meant it, when he said that he would arise from the dead on the third day. They did not go to that grave full of the expectation of a great miracle. Even the women that went to the grave early in that morning on that third day, they did not go there to see a miracle. No, they went there to tend a dead body, the dead body of the Lord Jesus. They did not expect to see him alive again. But what did they find? They found an empty tomb. It was not a tomb robbed of its content. No, they found the strips of linen neatly folded. And an angel of the Lord had to remind them what the Lord Jesus had told them 
before, namely, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered the words of the Lord Jesus. But even the fact of the resurrection at that time did not right away make that much of a difference to them. The disciples soon began to rebuild their former lives. They started up their fishing business and engaged in normal activities. They still thought that their lives would go on the way it was before they met the Lord Jesus. And that's understandable. For the Lord Jesus appeared to them only a few times after his resurrection. He was not surrounded by the large crowds as he was before the resurrection. He no longer ate and drank with the disciples either the way he did before. He appeared to them on the first Sunday, but then for a whole week they did not see him again. His appearances after his resurrection were sporadic. And do you know why? Well, listen to what he said to the Apostle Thomas. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 20, verse 29. Blessed are you when you believe. He was preparing them for the ascension. For the time that he would go to his father in heaven when he would no longer be on earth. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the most central doctrine of the Christian faith is the resurrection. But no one can explain the resurrection exactly. No one was there when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. And yet it is a fact. Now, how do you know this? Well, you know this because you believe it. The resurrection calls for an act of faith. For that is how God has revealed it. He presents the women who go to the grave and later on the disciples with an empty tomb. And then the Lord Jesus appears to them in the flesh. There are many witnesses to all this. The resurrection, therefore, is not something thought up by man. Man would not think up of this because man has a hard time believing this. No, it is God himself who thought it all up. For he is the giver of life. He is the only one who can give life to those who are dead. He is the only one who can raise from the dead. He is the only one who can create life. For who can explain life? When did life begin? Can a learned scientist explain that to you? Oh, sure, scientists know a lot of things. But they actually have only scratched the surface about the life of animals and plants and human beings. Time and again, scientists discover more. 
And there is so much more to be discovered. Actually, the scientists know very little. And there's one thing that they will never know, and that is how life begins. And that is because God is the one who created that life. Only he is the one who makes that which is dead alive. In the final analysis, even the most brilliant scientist can explain very little to you. And do you know why? Because they are not God. Only God can explain life. And he explains that to us in the scriptures. Life is a great gift from him. He is the creator of life. And even though death came into the world because of sin, he also triumphed over death through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you cannot have the gift of life if you remain in your sins. That brings us to our second point. The Catechism says that the first benefit of the resurrection of Christ is that he has overcome death so that he could make us share in the righteousness which he had obtained for us by his death. Rabbi Harold Kushner, you may have heard of him, in his popular book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, writes about righteousness. Now, righteousness, as no doubt most of you know, has to do with the justice of God. This rabbi does not believe in divine justice. For according to him, the concept of divine justice teaches people to blame themselves. This rabbi is somewhat of an agnostic. In other words, he says we cannot know about a heaven or a hell where God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Says he, we would be well advised to take this world as seriously as we can in case it turns out to be the only one we will ever have. And look for meaning and justice here. And so this rabbi wants us to look for justice here on this earth. And that's no wonder, for this rabbi does not know Christ. And without Christ there can be no justice. There can be no righteousness. Do you know what righteousness is? that at first point in the catechism deals with, righteousness has to do with the law. When Christ died, then he fulfilled the law. Only he could fulfill all righteousness. And because he died for us, we can also share in his righteousness. All we have to do is believe in him. Rabbi Kushner is a very disappointed and somewhat bitter man. When he wrote his book, he did it in reaction to what happened in his own life with the birth of a handicapped son. That son of his died at the age of 14. And he was devastated by it because he considered himself to be a good man. Why would God do such a thing, such a bad thing to me, a good man. And Rabbi Kushner and his ministry found that a lot of people blamed themselves for their troubles. 
And they thought that they themselves were somehow responsible for their own troubles, for their own misfortune. And they were looking for clues in their own lives as to why God would be so angry and that he would afflict them in this way. And those are questions that he struggled with for himself as well. And now Rabbi Kushner wrote his book in order to comfort himself and also those people. His message was that it wasn't because of any particular sin that these things happened to them. And in that case, he was right. Most tragedies in our lives are not because of a particular sin. Of course, if you drive recklessly and you come into a serious accident, then you can blame yourself. But what about when you get cancer? Or what about when you are hit by a drunk driver? That does not happen because of a particular sin. But why? Why does it happen? It happens because of all the sin that is in the world. This world stands condemned because of man's wickedness in general. It was mankind that rebelled against God. Mankind is also in rebellion against his fellow man. Man, by his very nature, is a selfish creature. Even the kindest person here on earth is still selfish in his motives. Every single man and woman sin against God and against their neighbor all the time. Mankind is totally polluted because of sin. And that rabbi could not see that. He saw himself as a good man. And he saw goodness everywhere. There is only one who is good, it says in the scriptures, and that is God. Even that little baby in the front of the church here, Peyton Priest, Pierce, who only a few days ago saw the first light of day, he is a sinful creature. He has never yet uttered a word and has never yet done anything good or bad except to eat, sleep, and cry. Already that baby is full of sin. As David says in Psalm 51 verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That applies to all of us. But now, Do you know what God promises to this child? What he just promised a moment ago? And to everyone who believes? And to the seed of the believers? Well, as the form for the baptism of infants says, he promises to cleanse him, and he promises to cleanse all of us from our sins. In other words, he is going to be washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God is going to give him and you and me new and clean clothes. All that guilt and all that dirt and all that filth, all that pollution because of sin, and all the effects of sin, he is going to remove. For you see, 
It is because of the Lord Jesus Christ that he is no longer angry at you. At the end of the worship service, a minister may proclaim that the Lord turns his face towards you. In other words, he is favorably inclined towards you. He smiles at you. And that is why we also come to this church. We don't come here to hear that we are condemned because of our sins. No, on the contrary, we come here because of that great hope that we have in this life. And the great hope that we have for the life to come. And we come here to this church in order to hear that good news time and time again, because we need to be told that every first day of the week, so we can take that with us as we go about our daily business. As we go about our daily business in this world full of sin and corruption and the effects of sin. And so this is not just good news for later, but it is good news for right now. That brings us to our third point, the triumph over Satan. The form for the baptism of infants also says that he not only cleanses us from our sins, but that he will also give us the renewal of life. And the catechism says that we, by God's power, are raised up to a new life. When we read from the letter to the Ephesians, we heard that Paul said to the Ephesians that they were dead in their transgressions and sins in which they used to live when they followed the ways of this world. They were dead in their trespasses. You can also say that they were in prison because of their sin. Because their sins prevented them from having a real life. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, when you follow the ways of the world, then you are in a prison. You are locked in. You are in the prison of your own desires and in the prison of your own destructive behavior. And you will never ever get out of that prison Unless you throw yourself at the mercy of God. Unless you ask the Lord your God to renew you, to cleanse you, and to save you. Do you know in whose power you are when you are in that prison? You are in the grip of Satan. Anyone who does not have Christ is in the grip of Satan. And Paul describes what such a life is like. He says, such a person wants nothing else but to gratify the cravings of his sinful desire and to follow its desires and thoughts. Brothers and sisters, and once again that includes you boys and girls, that is what you and I are like as well, all of us. In most ways we are not any different from the people of the world. For example, if someone hurts your feelings, then you want to lash out at them. That's our nature. Or if someone else has something that you would also like to have, then you want that too. We're full of jealousy. We're full of vengeance. We're full of greed. We are full of perversity. 
But do you know what the difference is between those who through faith belong to Christ and between those who don't? Well, it says in the Catechism that by His power we are raised to a new life. It is the daily renewal of our lives. Christ is triumphant over Satan and sin through Christ for you and for me. It is through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And that is what God promises to that baby here in front of the church. And that is what he promises to you and to me. We do not despair because of our sins. And Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 2. He says in the verses 4 through 5, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. And now here it comes, brothers and sisters. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. To me, that is one of the most beautiful statements in the Bible. I am dead in my transgressions, and don't I know it. Yet, in spite of that, God makes me alive in Christ. That, beloved, is the great benefit of the resurrection. And brothers and sisters, it is that knowledge that keeps me going every day. For even when you realize the magnitude of your sins... And the great debt that you owe God, that you can go star-raking mad. But because of Christ, instead, we have great joy. That is the great hope. That is the great joy that you and I may have. That is what you and I may cling to. And that is what I may proclaim from this pulpit time and again. And God continues to work in you, in your hearts, in your minds. He reminds you through the preaching, through your Bible reading, through your prayers, not to follow the sinful desires of your flesh, even though you do time and again, but you keep on trying not to. And that is why you already have a teeny little beginning of the obedience that God requires from us. The wonderful news is that because you are aware of your sins and because you humble yourself before God, that Christ, therefore, is now your righteousness. He has triumphed over Satan. He has triumphed over your fleshly desires in that way. He has given you a new life and he continues to give you a new life. The final benefit of the resurrection, the Catechism tells us, is that Christ's resurrection is to us the sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. That brings us to the fourth point. Christ triumphed over the second death for our sakes. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of an eternal death with Satan, we may have eternal life with Christ. When Christ ascended into heaven, he received a glorious body, an indestructible body. 
He no longer had a body that was weak, prone to sickness and death. We may share in that same benefit. It says in Philippians 3 verse 21 that he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. We have begun our new life by Christ's power and in the end we are going to be like him. We have now a foretaste of what awaits us. And what awaits us is so beautiful that we can only have a small inkling of what it's going to be like. For now this world is full of futility, full of emptiness. An unbeliever does not grasp the meaning of existence. As a matter of fact, modern man, also the brilliant scientist, tries to avoid the whole question of our existence because they can't explain it. They don't know. The book of Ecclesiastes speaks about the vanity of life. Vanity means emptiness, fluff, a fistful of wind, a pocket of nothing. That's the life of unbelievers. Their lives are empty. Vanity is this, beloved. It is spending your whole life paying your mortgage and then to die. It means to be busy with all kinds of things and to do all kinds of things and go all over the world and yet go nowhere. Vanity is the hope that tomorrow is going to bring something new. That tomorrow is going to be different. That there is gold at the end of the rainbow. Vanity is everything that leads to nothingness. That's the life of an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 15, the idea of vanity is also mentioned. It is mentioned in connection with the resurrection. Verse 2 of chapter 15 says that faith and going to church and listening to a sermon are nothing but vanity, wind, noise. If the Lord Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, life has no meaning without the resurrection. But in the last verse of chapter 15, after we are told about, every, about how everything has changed because of the resurrection of Christ, Paul makes a most significant statement in verse 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not full of emptiness. No, it is the other way around. It is full of meaning. Congregation, why do you believe? Why are you here this afternoon? Why do you go to church? Why do you make your financial contributions to the church? Why do you send your children to a Christian, to a Christian school? Why do you try to live holy lives? Why do you do the things that you do? Work, sleep, breathe. What is the purpose of it all? Do you do these things because they are expected from you? Out of tradition? Or because it is expected of you by your parents or your wife or your husband? Or do you do it because already in this life 
you have been given a new life through your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through his resurrection. If the latter is the case, then your labor is not in vain. It is not emptiness. The Lord God will reward you. His resurrection is a sure pledge of your glorious resurrection, as it says in the Catechism. A pledge means proof, guarantee. In other words, it is a sure thing that you will live on this earth forever and ever in most glorious bliss. And that life is given to all those who have a new life now. God gives you that glorious life through faith. For the glory comes from Him and is through Him for all those who believe. No matter what the so-called scientists of today tell you, Christ has risen from the dead. He left an empty tomb. He rose bodily into heaven. And he is there right now at the right hand of the Father to plead your cause. Why? Because he loves those who belong to him. That, beloved, is the joy of the resurrection. Live out of that joy. Amen.